My name is Joe Escobedo, and with me on the show today is Wendy McEwen, <laughs> who is the head of marketing and digital Asia Pacific at Knight Frank. I'm based here in Singapore. So thanks so much for being on the show, Wendy. Thanks for having me, Joe. So we have an exciting, exciting chat lined up for the, for the listeners today. I think three things I really want to cover, and um, we talked about last time. The first is you know, you've been in the digital world for 20 years, so really understanding the evolution that you've seen during that time. The second thing is you have previously been in a general manager role and now moved to marketing. So when I better understand how can marketers think more like business owners. And the third thing I really want to get your advice on is moving from traditional to digital in a very, very sales-driven industry, which is something that a lot of my clients are trying to grapple with right now. So. Yeah, let's dive into it. Like I said, you have 20 years, um, you know, in the digital world. Would love to hear kind of my experience and the evolution that you've experienced during this time. Sure. So yeah, I joined um, an internet media uh, company in 1999 in Australia as uh, the most junior member of the team. It was uh, what became CNET Networks and then CBS Interactive. So an online news and reviews publisher basically and uh, we sold advertising to marketers uh, and we wrote technology content for people in the IT buying chain so our readers or audience were from the IT um, organization and then our customers or people who paid the bills were marketers trying to sell technology to IT professionals and so I've always worked in IT and uh, and uh, and media mostly until recently, but always worked with marketers. Marketers were always my customers um, pretty much all the way through until I actually became a marketer. So when I joined the digital media industry, uh, it was really just print magazines on the web. It was really just um, what we'd always done in print, which was sell someone an ad and throw it up on the website so you create an audience and, and everything was very local. Everything was take the, the, the mothership masthead and then do what you want with it in a local country. Mm. And you know we all bumbled along doing that I think and everyone got quite big and unwieldy through the early 2000s and you know Yahoo was the biggest thing since last break back then. Up until around 2007, 2008 when uh, you had a kind of triumvirate of things happen where you had uh, the Apple, the iPhone and App Store kind of took everything global. You had the acceleration of Facebook as a social network that was one app everywhere and one experience everywhere. And then you had Google release the, uh, what I remember as being the SEO, the Panda update where they basically changed all the algorithms to penalize duplicate content. So where before you could uh, kind of leverage the mothership now you had to stand on your own two feet so there was like and and then you had programmatic media buying start coming into the fold as well where people started to between Facebook offering a very optimal marketing experience and really good reporting to marketers and Google um, offering very targeted results through search marketing you started to see this requirement to do a better job in how you were delivering uh, outcomes for marketers and for businesses at the same time as audiences getting used to 
you know, one seamless experience from, you know, one, and, and of course, Amazon in the background, they're just making it so easy to shop and, and do anything and everything. So um, that meant that every business had to think differently about their customer and about what they were delivering in terms of uh, every digital business had to think differently. Uh, how we were delivering outcomes for marketers and then programmatic media buying was also that kind of easy uh, outcomes uh, and uh, you know potentially arbitrage driven arbitrage driven in the background but ultimately you know that easy outcome for marketers so you know really had to rethink how we did business and replatform everything think about our audience differently think about our product offering differently Think about our talent differently which we had been doing all along but it just got accelerated um, so come 2014 um, after being in the media industry for 14 years I, I left CBS interactive after replatforming restructuring pivoting the whole business to adapt to that new normal and then I spent a couple of years trying to figure out what to do next because what I knew was, unless I worked for Facebook or Google or Amazon, I didn't want to work in a business that was supported by advertising as a revenue stream because without their algorithms and their data and their uh, global reach, it's very, very hard to compete against them. So media companies I knew were going to have a hard time ahead. So then I, uh, I, I worked on understanding what else was out there, spent some time in some startups, spent some time deep diving into programmatic and ad tech and then eventually landed at Oracle uh, working on customer experience technology and that was really to figure out what was what were the tools available to marketers and sellers to to be better uh, with their clients and to deliver better business outcomes because it is much more than advertising right marketing is much more than advertising and so what was the data layer how can marketers take advantage of connecting all those siloed interactions and touch points with the customer and, and you know customer interaction is much more than marketing as well right it's sales it's customer service and actually it's supply chain as well so the beauty of working at oracle which sold 22,000 tech products was really understanding how technology enabled an entire business and so with ERP and HR technology, you know, so finance and HR, supply chain, AI, um, everything. Um, so I spent three years traveling around Asia, interacting with every industry, you know, sitting in the boardroom of all different sectors in all different countries and all different economies at different stages of digital transformation at the macroeconomic level and everyone being disrupted by the unicorns at the same time, right? When you think about the emergence of Grab, uh, Gojek in Indonesia, you think about uh, Geo in India. I remember being in India around the time of demonetization and the launch of Geo, um, which was you know, really transformational for the India um, acceleration to digital as an economy to go from 200 million people online to 400 million people online within a couple of years. Uh, really changes the game for that economy uh, and now I think they're at 600 million plus so um, Really, you know really great learning to be in Pakistan and Sri Lanka and India and um, Indonesia and Thailand and Malaysia and Vietnam talking to FMCGs and telcos and banks and uh, retailers about what they 
how their customers changing, how they're uh, thinking differently about their go-to-market, how they're thinking about leveraging technology to, to stay competitive against whether it be Chinese-based businesses or US-based businesses, as well as uh, the other monopolies in their own markets. So uh, super interesting learning. And then an opportunity came up to, to practice what I was preaching and apply my learnings. And so I joined Knight Frank about 18 months ago to really walk the talk and stop ranting and start doing. And uh, it's been a great journey since then. I mean, it sounds like it's quite quite a gamut from seeing the whole evolution. It sounds like, you know, early 90s was kind of like the, the wild, wild west of, you know, the internet world. And, you know, it was relatively, you know, nascent. There wasn't that many competitors, but now it's like super saturated. It's like, it's almost overwhelming from, you know, both consumers and the, the marketers point of view. So it's interesting to see that that growth, not only in the industry, but also across across Asia. I mean, you have very, very deep insights in terms of each of these markets, how, how they've evolved over the past couple of years and decades. So really, really interesting stuff to hear about. And I know that, you know, you very much think like a business owner. I think it's one of the things you bring to, to Knight Frank is you think about marketing differently because you, you know, you've probably owned some P&Ls, you've speak, spoken with customers, you understand their pain points and things like that. So I think this is a big challenge I see with a lot of marketers is not thinking like a business owner they think like marketers um, going back to what you're saying they think of it in terms of like advertisement and, and media buying and stuff like that which is part of the puzzle but it's not the whole thing so i would love to hear kind of your thoughts in terms of how you apply some of the general management principles to what you're currently doing well you know it's ironic i feel a little bit like an imposter a lot of the time because i don't think like a marketer um so it's um I, I, you know, it's a bit of a challenge for me in the other direction, but it's definitely, you know, I think the most important thing is interacting with customers. And it's one of the things I miss because I'm not yet knowledgeable enough necessarily to have the authority to, to lead an interaction with a customer, but that's the beauty of digital. Uh, I get to interact with and listen to and hear from and, and you know this year in particular there's never been a better opportunity to learn and interact with and learn from anyone anywhere in the world so I've been interacting with people from the US the UK all over Asia Australia you know learning about the property industry learning about what matters to them and, and you know right now the future of work and the future of workplace has never been you know more topical everyone's talking about it whether they're a head of hr a ceo a finance director a head of procurement it's not limited to the real estate industry right now so i'm really lucky that i have a network that connects across all those job titles and i can really get a get a very good handle on what people are talking about what people care about what people are thinking about and then connect that back to my business and, and the, my stakeholders and what are they trying to do and what are they trying to achieve and who do they want to reach and how do they want to influence them. So, um, you know, you need to stay informed. You need to understand your business. Uh, what is the revenue uh, projections? You know, like what are they trying to do? How many people do they have to do it with? Who are those people trying to get that revenue from? Um, how often, what's the sales cycle, uh, you know, how long do they need uh, 
to influence people before they turn into a buyer. Uh, so all of those kind of metrics you need to break down and understand before then you can map back what's the strategy behind building that layer of influence. And what I found, um, even in the industry before that I worked in, interacting with the existing customers, at, you know, the, the traditional marketing, uh, a lot of marketing tools, a lot of marketing software is built to help deliver marketing qualified leads, which are often net new. So the marketing to customers you already know is usually left to customer success or uh, customer service, which is kind of weird, right? Because the 80-20 rule is that you can upsell and expand easier than you can land new customers. And in the real estate industry, obviously, uh, relationships extend for a really long time and actually the, the sales cycle might be super long. So interacting, building an engagement strategy with people we already know is just as important as, as capturing um, potential opportunities from new customers. So, um, you know, really defining who is the customer, who are we trying to reach, who are customers that look like those customers, and then thinking about what's the best way to reach them. The real estate industry traditionally isn't digital. Mm. Um, it, it has not been, uh, not only the sellers, but the buyers as well. Um, I think I shared with you when I joined Knight Frank, the social selling index average for the real estate industry is 23. Um, I don't think you or I have ever seen an SSI score so low. <laughs> Um, I was flabbergasted and you know to me that's a massive opportunity there's nothing but upside in seeing an SSI that low uh, but it doesn't just come from the sellers it comes from the buyers as well so as we see generational change obviously that will improve uh, but in the meantime we have to figure out ways to influence across a lot more channels um, although I'm wondering how much it will change after this year we will see yeah no that's, that's a very good point there's two things I want to touch on um, Later, I want to get your thoughts on, you talk about the future of work and all the commercial real estate companies are talking about that. I want to get your thoughts in terms of how do you actually differentiate yourself because it's, it's a hot topic that everyone's in the mix. Um, but first, before that, we talked about kind of, you know, um, in the commercial real estate space, it's not the most, you know, it's a, quite traditional in its mindset, both in the, the buyers and kind of the, the seller side. But how do you get the team um, sold in to the social selling thing. If they're saying like, for example, my clients, so the excuse is always, oh, my clients are not on you know, LinkedIn, they're not on social, which I, I tend to, to question my clients about, but what are some of the obstacles you face when you're getting them on board with social selling and how do you really address those? Well, actually, in some cases, the clients are not, you know, they've been right. Um, you know, I was very skeptical and I used to share your skepticism, but actually in reality, in, in some cases they're not, because uh, they're just as conservative and it's new to them too. So in that case, uh, it, 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 you have to look at the buying chain, right? Who are the people that influence the people you're trying to influence and are they there? Um, who are the people around them, uh, either in their own firm or in other firms that they would turn to? because you know how it is right you have worked in companies where your ceo probably well maybe you're a bit young but in the old days the ceo didn't type his own emails right but someone was doing it for him and someone somewhere is doing it for these people in some way shape or form so there, it doesn't mean you don't do it it just means you don't just do that 
right? Like you, you can't go all in on one, one tactic. You have to think about where are the different places. So for example, engaging with industry associations and having a voice through third parties uh, might be just as important as having your own voice uh, in, in your own uh, social presence. So um, social leadership is important, but it does have to be complemented, especially if, um, if, it, if it is you know, a reality that not everybody is in that place. Yeah, and you bring up two really good points. I think there's um, indirect benefits of social selling. You said even if they're not online, it's, you reach them through the third party organizations who are generally active on those because they're trying to recruit new members or trying to promote their event. So I give an example, I'm quite active and literally after every LinkedIn Live I do, I'll usually get two or three requests to do some public speaking um, with my okay. audience. So I think that's a byproduct of, of being active. It's not necessarily, like you said, reaching the direct people, but those industry associations are where, you know, the, the target customers are hanging out. So there's an indirect thing that takes place Another thing that's quite interesting, and this is a spark from a conversation I was having with Daniel from um, LinkedIn, and we we're talking about um, social as a way to gather um, insights as a, as a testing tool. So for example, you're constantly putting out content, seeing what's working, what's not working. And look, if your audience is not on there, at least you know what are some of the conversations or what is some of the content that's getting engagement. And you can take the conversation offline, you can take it on WhatsApp or you know direct message or email, wherever your actual customers or prospects are, you take some of the key learnings and saying, I've been you know, having these conversations around blank. Um, is this something that's relevant to you? Or you know, at least you have a bit of more pulse in terms of what the community is talking about and you can use that to steer the conversation. Um, I found that these were very well like follow-ups as well, like touching bases. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, it's a great point. It gives you that talking point. And I often, you know, maybe in this region, people aren't active, but in the US or the UK or maybe Australia, they are. So you can tap into conversations elsewhere and then use that as a door opener or an icebreaker when you're trying to, you know, have that WhatsApp or phone call or coffee conversation uh, because you can speak to something with authority based on, you know, what you're seeing happen elsewhere. So, I, I mean, it's, it's such an intelligence tool for me personally, but getting other people into that mindset, like there's only so much time in a day and, and people have such different workflows, right? And it, when people don't naturally have digital in their workflow, it's not easy to get them to, to think differently about it. It really is a, a challenge. So the best you can do is try and help them understand that, you know, my friend Andrea Edwards talks to the dopamine, being the dopamine in someone else's day. And so if you can help them get those dopamine hits and they can see um, that engagement level, and that starts with your internal employee network, right? Connecting all the champions across the business. Uh, that's a good kickoff point and then from there it's really how you strategically start finding uh, the clients or the influences of clients that can really help you be visible and deliver that kind of authority across the industry yeah that's no, a good point i think um the more senior you go there's usually some, a bit of apprehension in terms of trying new things because they're like we've done it this many years the way it's worked it's the way it'll always work kind of thing um, but one thing that I've done in the past and love to hear your thoughts on this as well is just kind of showcasing what success looks like this year in terms of sales and it could be incorporating social selling, could be incorporating other elements which are offline. Um, but I think 
everyone likes to learn to some extent, or at least they're, they're open to, to some extent. And I think they like seeing examples of like, like what other team members are doing, some traction they're getting. So for example, if a senior member is, has no LinkedIn account, has never been active, if you have like a internal um, kickoff, for example, and you're showcasing like, you know, the top three salespeople are doing this on LinkedIn, they're doing this, uh, you know, at events or doing blah, 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 blah. At least it gives them some context in terms of what they could be doing, what success looks like. And also yeah. it helps start that little bit competitive spirit because every time I work with salespeople, or at least, you know, they're very, very competitive. They always want to outdo each other. I think it's part of being a salesperson. So I found that that has helped spark some of the, you know, a little bit of a drive. I think that's part, and your part is, you know, how do you sustain that? So I'd love to get your thoughts on, on that as well. Yeah, I think um, I did that in the beginning. I said, this is what the competition are doing. Um, actually, LinkedIn helped me build, the Sales Navigator team helped me build a whole bunch of um, charts around the competition and also the clients. This is what your clients are doing um, because that's super helpful. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it can't all, it, it, it's not all that, it's not all about just that. And, and you know, I've realized because I was so gung ho about it, you know, a year ago or so when I first joined and I felt like that everyone was invisible. And, and now I think it's, it's just, it, it's got to be part of an overall mix. So really working together to find what works and what rhythm works and what momentum works and then what else is there, in, you know, that's optimal. And I think right now, um, you know, it's interesting and I'd love your thoughts on is social selling working at the moment because it feels, because everything is digital right now, um, it feels like the volume has gone up you know, 10x kind of thing because everyone has nothing else. Yeah. And so um, to your point around the cut through, uh, I, I don't know. And, and that traditional, so like I hate social selling as a term. I think it's yeah. terrible, um, you know, because it doesn't encourage you to deliver value to your client, right? Like you can use LinkedIn to figure out what your client cares about and then use that knowledge to be useful to your client in whatever format you want to interact with your client, mm -hmm. as opposed to just, I want to send a hundred interactions today and a hundred interactions tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? So I don't really encourage social selling in the traditional sense because it's, it's just encouraging bad behavior. And the same with things like um, amplifying social posts. Um, you know, in my old job, uh, I was a, one of the voices of the company, so I would get amplified by thousands of people, but it was meaningless because it, there was no thought attached to it. It was just amplification, and amplification is just broadcast. You know, it's just another term for broadcast, and so it's not really, that's not how I use social. So I always found it intensely uncomfortable, so that's not how I teach people to use social. I, I'm with you 100%, 10%. I don't particularly like the term social selling because I don't think it really applies to those who are doing it very well. If your intent is solely to sell, I think you're setting yourself up for failure um, versus if you're trying to add you know, value to your, to your prospect, whether it's sharing resources or sharing tips or trends or wh whatever it is, that for me is more in terms of social selling. Um, I agree with you 110%. I think that the volume has gone up exponentially, especially during COVID. Um, which is why I think a lot of brands really struggle, both salespeople and brands struggle, because they don't really know how to stand out. Um, but to your point, I think those who, you know, go a little bit deeper, so either in focusing on a particular, you know, um, niche or industry or geography, 
or vertical, I think has a better chance of standing out versus I'll give an example. And I look at my analytics all the time for the podcast. I can do a very generic one on social studies strategy for 2020. Super generic. I could try to appeal to everyone, but then it's just going to be so like generic, so vanilla that it's, it's going to get drowned out in the mix versus if I were to create a, you know, series on social selling best practice in 2024 commercial real estate space in APAC. Now I might get a smaller pool, but I'm going to get the right people um, involved in that conversation. So I think that is the tactic that I've been using and I've been using with clients in terms of drilling a bit deeper in terms of um, making sure it's relevant to that specific um, target audience and not just saying, look, let's try to get as many numbers and see how many signs or how many engagements we get because at the end of the day, that's quite meaningless uh, for a lot of businesses. It's good for vanity metrics. We cut ourselves in the back, but it doesn't actually help the business. Um, one of my favorite quotes is this from a guy from Aaron Orendolf. He's a brilliant copywriter. He says, I would rather have uh, one uh, you know, target audience attend my event and buy from me that day than 10,000 people who have no interest in terms of what I'm doing. So that is, that is a tactic that I've, that I've been using to kind of cut through some of the, the BS and some of the, the volume that's going on. And also just trying to make it less of a sales pitch. I think it's very obvious. You can see in a lot of different um, you know, organizations and salespeople, their incentive or their goal is just clearly, can I get you this? Can I sell you something on the spot? And going back to your point, it does not work in, it definitely does not work in B2B. It may work in a B2C where you have like a very, you have like a $10 t-shirt where you're selling, fine. But if you're selling a million dollar, a hundred thousand dollar product, it's, it's no one, no one has ever attended a webinar and be like, yes, here's my check, take my money. It's like, it does not work like that, but there's still a mentality where, you know, marketers and salespeople still have that, that's a, you know, realistic, unrealistic expectation. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Like, why, why are you relevant to me? You know, it's the most basic thing. Like, every time you share something, you send something, you pick up the phone, you know, why should I give you my time? Everyone's most limited resource is time. Make it about me, not about you. And if you make it about me, you'll get my attention. And that's like the single biggest thing that people need to understand in whatever format they're trying to communicate with someone. So if you're sending the same thing to a hundred people, you're not making it about them mm -hmm. and you're not going to get their attention unless it's a gimmick, like you say, like $10 iPhones or something. But um, at the end of the day, if you really want to engage and build a relationship, you have to understand who you're trying to reach what what's in it for them and then um give them something useful you know whether that's research whether that's insight whether that's an invitation to something where they will learn something useful or meet useful people uh, whether you want to elevate their personal brand uh you know there's so many different ways you can do it mm. yeah no I, I i absolutely i agree with you heartily that's a term i always use in all my trainings is what's in it for them because if you think about it from that perspective and you don't have an answer, I say, don't post it, don't write it, don't publish it because it's just boosting your ego, but it's just gonna be a waste of time and piss people off. So I'd rather you not do it. Think about what's in it for them and you know, think about how you can add value. But I think it goes back to what you're saying, relevant value. So I love that you're actually talking to your customers. You'd be surprised at how many marketers are not doing that um, and understanding what are some of the challenges and tying that back in the conversation. So even with my content strategy, I don't think of, you know, ideas that I read and I said, oh, that looks interesting. Let me write about that. It's very much, okay, I had a conversation with this client. They said, you know, Joe, tell me about this, this, this. 
So I'll obviously address that in the conversation, the meeting, but then I'll also pull out snippets from that and share it, whether it's a series or a blog or whatever it is. So that usually sparks a lot of the, the relevancy in terms of actual clients, because these are the questions they're asking, these are the challenges they're coming to me with. Um, so I think that's another thing. Absolutely. And, you know, clients have never been more accessible because everything's a webinar right now, right? So in the old days, talking about industry associations, the marketer might not have been able to get a ticket, right? Because you had to send a seller. Uh, you might not have been able, you might not have been invited even to those company events where the thought leaders from the company were presenting to clients. Um, now we're running all the events um, ourselves or we can sign up to, like you can sign up to anything and not only in your own country, you can sign up to anything anywhere in the world. So there's never been a better time to download a podcast or not even download it, stream a podcast, you know, watch the webinar replays, join things live, um, you know, be part of industry associations. There's so many opportunities out there. Connect with people on LinkedIn and talk to them directly. Um, but there's just so much going on. Um, so there's no excuse not to be at least listening to your customer if not talking to them. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I would love to hear kind of what are some of the questions you use to I mean, I know it happens organically in a conversation, but are there any like, you know, questions you use to unearth insights that can be applicable or helpful to what you're doing? Uh, well, I, I'm just at the cusp of still getting away with, I'm new to the industry, so I really want to learn from you. Um, you know, that's, that's a pretty, um, pretty good icebreaker in itself. And usually because I've read something they've shared or I've watched them on, on uh, an event or you know seen some report, et cetera. So it's pretty easy. Uh, I, I don't look like a seller on my profile, so it's pretty easy to, um, to start spark a conversation. Uh, in terms of then the questions, it's really, you know, what's going on in your company? And, and, and as you, you know, we were talking about before around the future of work and workplace, Everyone I know has an opinion on the future of work and workplace. So it doesn't matter who I talk to, whether it's, um, you know, I, I have a big network of connections from all different industries, obviously. So I tap into the conversation with everyone I talk to and that helps, you know, bring that back to, because my colleagues are talking to the people working in real estate. I'm talking to people who work in business, whether that's marketing, sales, uh, partnership network, CEOs, founders, you know, I, I'm talking to a whole range of people, HR, heads of HR, etc. Mm. No, I, I love that, that hack I'm new to the industry. I think it's, I think it's, it's great because I think a lot of people, they feel the apprehension, like, because they're new to the industry, they'll just say, oh, I'm new, so I don't want to approach someone because I don't feel like I know enough. But I think coming mm. from a perspective where you're genuinely interested in what they're doing, and being honest and being like, look, I'm relatively new to the industry. Would love to get your thoughts in terms of what you're doing, what you've seen work well, what are some of the challenges in your space. Then it, it makes the conversation a bit more, you know, um, it breaks down some of those, those barriers that you would generally have yeah. from a, a seller versus a buyer point of view. So really good tips. Yeah. And I think, you know, people love to talk about what they do. People yeah. love to talk about themselves. Uh, and people love to share especially right now, you know, because nobody knows where this is going. So everyone wants to kind of tap into, well, what are you seeing kind of thing. So where you can facilitate that peer-to-peer -peer learning, uh, people are really appreciative of that. So as long as you are cognizant of 
if you're asking for someone's time, what can you give them in return? And you're cognizant of uh, opportunities on both sides and, you know, delivering value both ways, win-win situations. People are very open to it. And, um, you know, when a lot of people reach out to me and ask for these kind of things as well. And, and I'm always looking for um, what can I, I, I'm happy to give back, but I also want you to make it easy for me. You know, like make it easy for me to, to do this for you. Don't expect me to do all the work. I'm time poor like you are. So, you know, there's got to be a two-way um, effort. A absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think this is something advice I give as a side topic for if you're trying to get client testimonials, I think we make it way too difficult to get client testimonials. So I was giving advice to one of my clients last week in terms of like, if you're catching with them for coffee, if you can just literally record the conversation, you transcribe it, you give it back to them and say, okay, here's what we discussed. Is it okay if we publish this on our website? So it's a, a, literally a yes or no from them versus them sitting down and being like, blah, 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 blah. It's like, it's like you're going back to saying like value, value their time, make it as easy as possible. Otherwise people will just like, you know, I don't want to do it or I'll get to it when I get to it kind of thing. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Wendy, there are some incredible tips in here. Um, all right. Am I missing anything else that I haven't asked you? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, obviously there's so many different topics we could go into, but um, that's the, um, I, I would say to everyone to be bold, be brave, which is uh, the marketing society um, mantra to be brave, uh, to have a voice, find your voice. Don't be afraid to use your voice, uh, but be informed, uh, use your voice uh, and connect it to what the people you're talking to care about. Uh, don't just talk about vanity metrics, talk about things that matter to the people in the room and um, continue to learn, you know, always look for places to learn and people to learn from. Uh, from a, you know, your competitors, your customers, mm. your customers, customers, uh, and, and other peers in the industry. There's, there's always someone to learn from. So keep your eyes and ears open and be confident and be brave. I love it. I'm going to try to be confident and bold going forward. Going forward. So thank you so much for that, Wendy. Really appreciate you sharing your insights. Uh, I learned quite a lot today and it was really good catching up. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for the opportunity. My pleasure, my pleasure. And if you've enjoyed today's interview, please feel free to share it with any of your colleagues or bosses. There's a lot of really good tips in here. So thank you so much. Um, take care and we'll see you next time. Bye guys.